Welcome to the Perennials Podcast Book Club. I'm Victoria Russell, and you're listening to Chapter 30 of Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. After the chapter reading, you're going to hear reflections on the chapter in a conversation between me and my cousin Olivia Arnold, who was also a guest of the Perennials Podcast, I think Episode 3 of Perennials. Olivia is a teacher, a history teacher in Boston, Massachusetts, and this chapter was really perfect for a conversation with Olivia because in this chapter we learn more about Anne's ambition to become a teacher herself. And Olivia is also very passionate about girls and women's development and education, and that's something that we we learn a little bit more about the girls of Avonlea um, they're the way that they are prepared for adulthood by the women in their community. And so based on everything that Olivia is really passionate about, it just was a perfect fit. And it turned into a really interesting conversation about some of the conditioning that girls receive from a young age. And also um, more broadly, we talked about childhood and innocence and growing up and what it means to kind of transition from childhood into young adulthood. I think you'll love Olivia as much as I do and really appreciate her thoughtful, eloquent insight. So let's get into the chapter. Chapter 30, The Queen's Class is Organized. Marilla laid her knitting on her lap and leaned back in her chair. Her eyes were tired and she thought vaguely that she must see about having her glasses changed the next time she went to town, for her eyes had grown tired very often of late. It was nearly dark, for the dull November twilight had fallen around Green Gables, and the only light in the kitchen came from the dancing red flames in the stove. Anne was curled up Turk fashion on the hearth rug, gazing into that joyous glow where the sunshine of a hundred summers was being distilled from the maple cordwood. She had been reading, but her book had slipped to the floor, and now she was dreaming, with a smile on her parted lips. Glittering castles in Spain were shaping themselves out of the mists and rainbows of her lively fancy. Adventures wonderful and enthralling were happening to her in Cloudland, adventures that always turned out triumphantly and never involved her in scrapes like those of actual life. Marilla looked at her with a tenderness that would never have been suffered to reveal itself in any clearer light than that soft mingling of fireshine and shadow. The lesson of a love that should display itself easily in spoken word and open look was one Marilla could never learn. But she had learned to love this slim, gray-eyed girl with an affection all the deeper and stronger from its very undemonstrativeness. Her love made her afraid of being unduly indulgent indeed. She had an uneasy feeling that it was rather sinful to set one's heart so intensely on any human creature as she had set hers on Anne, and perhaps she performed a sort of unconscious penance for this by being stricter and more critical than if the girl had been less dear to her. Certainly Anne herself had no idea how Marilla loved her. She sometimes thought wistfully that Marilla was very hard to please and distinctly lacking in sympathy and understanding but she always checked the thought reproachfully, remembering what she owed to Marilla. Anne, said Marilla abruptly, Miss Stacy was here this afternoon when you were out with Diana. 
Anne came back from her other world with a start and a sigh. Was she? Oh, I'm so sorry I wasn't in. Why didn't you call me, Marilla? Diana and I were only over in the haunted wood. It's lovely in the woods now. All the little wood things, the ferns and the satin leaves and the crackerberries, have gone to sleep, just as if somebody had tucked them away until spring under a blanket of leaves. I think it was a little gray fairy with a rainbow scarf that came tiptoeing along the last moonlight night and did it. Diana wouldn't say much about that, though. Diana has never forgotten the scolding her mother gave her about imagining ghosts into the haunted wood. It had a very bad effect on Diana's imagination. It blighted it. Mrs. Lynde says Myrtle Bell is a blighted being. I asked Ruby Gillis why Myrtle was blighted, and Ruby said she guessed it was because her young man had gone back on her. Ruby Gillis thinks of nothing but young men, and the older she gets, the worse she is. Young men are all very well in their place, but it doesn't do to drag them into everything, does it? Diana and I are thinking seriously of promising each other that we will never marry, but be nice old maids and live together forever. Diana hasn't quite made up her mind, though, because she thinks perhaps it would be nobler to marry some wild, dashing, wicked young man and reform him. Diana and I talk a great deal about serious subjects now, you know. We feel that we are so much older than we used to be that it isn't becoming to talk of childish matters. It's such a solemn thing to be almost fourteen, Marilla. Miss Stacy took all us girls who are in our teens down to the brook last Wednesday and talked to us about it. She said we couldn't be too careful what habits we formed and what ideals we acquired in our teens because by the time we were twenty our characters would be developed and the foundation laid for our whole future life. And she said if the foundation was shaky, we could never build anything really worthwhile on it. Diana and I talked the matter over coming home from school. We felt extremely solemn, Marilla. And we decided that we would try to be very careful indeed and form respectable habits and learn all we could and be as sensible as possible so that by the time we were twenty, our characters would be properly developed. It's perfectly appalling to think of being twenty, Marilla. It sounds so fearfully old and grown up. But why was Miss Stacy here this afternoon? That is what I want to tell you, Anne, if you'll ever give me a chance to get a word in edgewise. She was talking about you. About me? Anne looked rather scared. Then she flushed and exclaimed, "'Oh, I know what she was saying. I meant to tell you, Marilla. Honestly, I did, but I forgot. Miss Stacy caught me reading Ben-Hur in school yesterday afternoon when I should have been studying my Canadian lesson. Jane Andrews lent it to me. I was reading it at dinner hour, and I had just got to the chariot race when school went in. I was simply wild to know how it turned out, although I felt sure Ben-Hur must win, because it wouldn't be poetical justice if he didn't. So I spread the history open on my desk lid and then tucked Ben-Hur between the desk and my knee. It just looked as if I were studying Canadian history, you know, while all the while I was reveling in Ben-Hur. I was so interested in it that I never noticed Miss Stacy coming down the aisle until all at once I just looked up and there she was looking down at me so reproachful-like. I can't tell you how ashamed I felt, Marilla, especially when I heard Josie Pye giggling. Miss Stacy took Ben-Hur away, but she never said a word then. She kept me in at recess and talked to me. She said I had done very wrong in two respects. First, I was wasting the time I ought to have put on my studies, and secondly, I was deceiving my teacher and trying to make it appear I was reading a history when it was a storybook instead. I had never realized until that moment, Marilla, that what I was doing was deceitful. I was shocked. I cried bitterly and asked Miss Stacy to forgive me and I'd never do such a thing again, and I offered to do penance by never so much as looking at Ben-Hur for a whole week, not even to see how the chariot race turned out. But Miss Stacy said she wouldn't require that, and she forgave me freely. So I think it wasn't very kind of her to come up here to you about it after all. Miss Stacy never mentioned such a thing to me, Anne, and it's only your guilty conscience that's the matter with you. You have no business to be taking storybooks to school. You read too many novels anyhow. When I was a girl, I wasn't so much as allowed to look at a novel. 
Oh, how can you call Ben-Hur a novel when it's really such a religious book? protested Anne. Of course, it's a little too exciting to be proper reading for Sunday, and I only read it on weekdays. And I never read any book now unless either Miss Stacy or Mrs. Allen thinks it is a proper book for a girl thirteen and three quarters to read. Miss Stacy made me promise that. She found me reading a book one day called The Lurid Mystery of the Haunted Hall. It was one Ruby Gillis had lent me, and, oh, Marilla, it was so fascinating and creepy. It just curdled the blood in my veins. But Miss Stacy said it was a very silly, unwholesome book, and she asked me not to read any more of it or any like it. I didn't mind promising not to read any more like it, but it was agonizing to give back that book without knowing how it turned out. But my love for Miss Stacy stood the test, and I did. It's really wonderful, Marilla, what you can do when you're truly anxious to please a certain person. Well, I guess I'll light the lamp and get to work, said Marilla. I see plainly that you don't want to hear what Miss Stacy had to say. You're more interested in the sound of your own tongue than in anything else. Oh, Marilla, I do want to hear it, cried Anne contritely. I won't say another word, not one. I know I talk too much, but I am really trying to overcome it, and although I say far too much, yet if you only knew how many things I want to say and don't, you'd give me some credit for it. Please tell me, Marilla. Well, Miss Stacy wants to organize a class among her advanced students who mean to study for the entrance examination into Queens. She intends to give them extra lessons for an hour after school, and she came to ask Matthew and me if we would like to have you join it. What do you think about it yourself, Anne? Would you like to go to Queens and pass for a teacher? Oh, Marilla! Anne straightened to her knees and clasped her hands. It's been the dream of my life. That is, for the last six months, ever since Ruby and Jane began to talk of studying for the entrance. But I didn't say anything about it because I supposed it would be perfectly useless. I'd love to be a teacher, but won't it be dreadfully expensive? Mr. Andrews says it cost him $150 to put Prissy through, and Prissy wasn't a dunce in geometry. I guess you needn't worry about that part of it. When Matthew and I took you to bring up, we resolved we would do the best we could for you and give you a good education. I believe in a girl being fitted to earn her own living, whether she ever has to or not. You'll always have a home at Green Gables as long as Matthew and I are here, but nobody knows what is going to happen in this uncertain world, and it's just as well to be prepared. So you can join the Queen's class if you like, Anne. Oh, Marilla, thank you! Anne flung her arms about Marilla's waist and looked up earnestly into her face. I'm extremely grateful to you and Matthew, and I'll study as hard as I can and do my very best to be a credit to you. I warn you not to expect much in geometry, but I think I can hold my own in anything else if I work hard. I dare say you'll get along well enough. Miss Stacy says you are bright and diligent. Not for worlds would Marilla have told Anne just what Miss Stacy had said about her. That would have been to pamper vanity. You needn't rush to any extreme of killing yourself over your books. There is no hurry. You won't be ready to try the entrance for a year and a half yet. But it's well to begin in time and be thoroughly grounded, Miss Stacy says. I shall take more interest than ever in my studies now, said Anne blissfully, because I have a purpose in life. Mr. Allen says everybody should have a purpose in life and pursue it faithfully. Only he says we must first make sure that it is a worthy purpose. I would call it a worthy purpose to want to be a teacher like Miss Stacy, wouldn't you, Marilla? I think it's a very noble profession. The Queen's class was organized in due time. Gilbert Blythe, Anne Shirley, Ruby Gillis, Jane Andrews, Josie Pye, Charlie Sloan, and Moody Spurgeon McPherson joined it. Diana Barry did not, as her parents did not intend to send her to Queen's. This seemed nothing short of a calamity to Anne. Never, since the night on which Minnie May had had the croup, had she and Diana been separated in anything. 
On the evening when the Queen's class first remained in school for the extra lessons, and Anne saw Diana go slowly out with the others, to walk home alone through the birch path and violet veil, it was all the former could do to keep her seat and refrain from rushing impulsively after her chum. A lump came into her throat, and she hastily retired behind the pages of her uplifted Latin grammar to hide the tears in her eyes. Not for worlds would Anne have had Gilbert Blythe or Josie Pye see those tears. "'But, oh, Marilla, I really felt that I had tasted the bitterness of death, as Mr. Allen said in his sermon last Sunday, when I saw Diana go out alone,' she said mournfully that night. "'I thought how splendid it would have been if Diana had only been going to study for the entrance, too.' but we can't have things perfect in this imperfect world, as Mrs. Lynde says. Mrs. Lynde isn't exactly a comforting person sometimes, but there's no doubt she says a great many very true things. And I think the Queen's class is going to be extremely interesting. Jane and Ruby are just going to study to be teachers. That is the height of their ambition. Ruby says she will only teach for two years after she gets through, and then she intends to be married. Jane says she will devote her whole life to teaching, and never, never marry because you are paid a salary for teaching, but a husband won't pay you anything, and growls if you ask for a share in the egg and butter money. I expect Jane speaks from mournful experience, for Mrs. Lynde says her father is a perfect old crank, and meaner than second skimmings. Josie Pye says she is just going to college for education's sake, because she won't have to earn her own living. She says, of course, it is different with orphans who are living on charity. They have to hustle. Moody Spurgeon is going to be a minister. Mrs. Lynde says he couldn't be anything else with a name like that to live up to. I hope it isn't wicked of me, Marilla, but really the thought of Moody Spurgeon being a minister makes me laugh. He's such a funny-looking boy with that big fat face and his little blue eyes and his ears sticking out like flaps. But perhaps he will be more intellectual-looking when he grows up. Charlie Sloane says he's going to go into politics and be a member of Parliament, but Mrs. Lynde says he'll never succeed at that because the Sloanes are all honest people and it's only rascals that get on in politics nowadays. "'What is Gilbert Blythe going to be?' queried Marilla, seeing that Anne was opening her Caesar. "'I don't happen to know what Gilbert Blythe's ambition in life is, if he has any,' said Anne scornfully. There was open rivalry between Gilbert and Anne now. Previously the rivalry had been rather one-sided, but there was no longer any doubt that Gilbert was as determined to be first in class as Anne was. He was a foeman worthy of her steel.' The other members of the class tacitly acknowledged their superiority and never dreamed of trying to compete with them. Since the day by the pond when she had refused to listen to his plea for forgiveness, Gilbert, save for the aforesaid determined rivalry, had evinced no recognition whatever of the existence of Anne Shirley. He talked and jested with the other girls, exchanged books and puzzles with them, discussed lessons and plans, sometimes walked home with one or the other of them, from prayer meeting or debating club. But Anne Shirley he simply ignored, and Anne found out that it is not pleasant to be ignored. It was in vain that she told herself with a toss of her head that she did not care. Deep down in her wayward, feminine little heart she knew that she did care, and that if she had that chance of the lake of shining waters again, she would answer very differently. All at once, as it seemed, and to her secret dismay, she found that the old resentment she had cherished against him was gone, gone just when she most needed its sustaining power. It was in vain that she recalled every incident and emotion of that memorable occasion and tried to feel the old satisfying anger. That day by the pond had witnessed its last spasmodic flicker. Anne realized that she had forgiven and forgotten without knowing it, but it was too late. And at least neither Gilbert nor anybody else, not even Diana, should ever suspect how sorry she was and how much she wished she hadn't been so proud and horrid. She determined to shroud her feelings in deepest oblivion and it may be stated here and now that she did it, 
so successfully that Gilbert, who possibly was not quite so indifferent as he seemed, could not console himself with any belief that Anne felt his retaliatory scorn. The only poor comfort he had was that she snubbed Charlie Sloane unmercifully, continually, and undeservedly. Otherwise the winter passed away in a round of pleasant duties and studies. For Anne the days slipped by like golden beads on the necklace of the year. She was happy, eager, interested. There were lessons to be learned, and honors to be won, delightful books to read, new pieces to be practiced for the Sunday school choir, pleasant Saturday afternoons at the manse with Mrs. Allen, and then, almost before Anne realized it, spring had come again to Green Gables, and all the world was abloom once more. Studies palled just a wee bit then. The Queen's class, left behind in school while the others scattered to green lanes and leafy woodcuts and meadow byways, looked wistfully out of the windows and discovered that Latin verbs and French exercises had somehow lost the tang and zest they had possessed in the crisp winter months. Even Anne and Gilbert lagged and grew indifferent. Teacher and Tot were alike glad when the term was ended and the glad vacation days stretched rosily before them. "'But you've done good work this past year.' Miss Stacy told them on the last evening, and you deserve a good, jolly vacation. Have the best time you can in the out-of-door world, and lay in a good stock of health and vitality and ambition to carry you through next year. It will be the tug-of-war, you know, the last year before the entrance. "'Are you going to be back next year, Miss Stacy?' asked Josie Pye. Josie Pye never scrupled to ask questions. In this instance, the rest of the class felt grateful to her. None of them would have dared to ask it of Miss Stacy, but all wanted to, for there had been alarming rumors running at large through the school for some time that Miss Stacy was not coming back the next year, that she had been offered a position in the graded school of her own home district and meant to accept. The Queen's class listened in breathless suspense for her answer. "'Yes, I think I will,' said Miss Stacy. "'I thought of taking another school, but I have decided to come back to Avonlea.' To tell the truth, I've grown so interested in my pupils here that I found I couldn't leave them. So I'll stay and see you through. Hurrah! said Moody Spurgeon. Moody Spurgeon had never been so carried away by his feelings before, and he blushed uncomfortably every time he thought about it for a week. Oh, I'm so glad, said Anne with shining eyes. Dear Miss Stacy, it would be perfectly dreadful if you didn't come back. I don't believe I could have the heart to go on with my studies at all if another teacher came here. When Anne got home that night, she stacked all her textbooks away in an old trunk in the attic, locked it, and threw the key into the blanket box. "'I'm not even going to look at a school book in vacation,' she told Marilla. "'I've studied as hard all the term as I possibly could, and I've pored over that geometry until I know every proposition in the first book off heart, even when the letters are changed. I just feel tired of everything sensible, and I'm going to let my imagination run riot for the summer. Oh, you needn't be alarmed, Marilla. I'll only let it run riot within reasonable limits.' but I want to have a real good jolly time this summer, for maybe it's the last summer I'll be a little girl. Mrs. Lynn says that if I keep stretching out next year as I've done this, I'll have to put on longer skirts. She says I'm all running to legs and eyes, and when I put on longer skirts I shall feel that I have to live up to them and be very dignified. It won't even do to believe in fairies then, I'm afraid, so I'm going to believe in them with all my whole heart this summer. I think we're going to have a very gay vacation. Ruby Gillis is going to have a birthday party soon, and there's the Sunday school picnic and the missionary concert next month. And Mr. Barry says that some evening he'll take Diana and me over to the White Sands Hotel and have dinner there. They have dinner there in the evening, you know. Jane Andrews was over once last summer, and she says it was a dazzling sight to see the electric lights and the flowers and all the lady guests in such beautiful dresses. Jane says it was her first glimpse into high life, and she'll never forget it her dying day and she'll never forget it to her dying day.
Mrs. Lynde came up the next afternoon to find out why Marilla had not been at the aid meeting on Thursday. When Marilla was not at aid meeting, people knew there was something wrong at Green Gables. Matthew had a bad spell with his heart Thursday, Marilla explained, and I didn't feel like leaving him. Oh yes, he's all right again now, but he takes some spells oftener than he used to and I'm anxious about him. The doctor says he must be careful to avoid excitement. That's easy enough, for Matthew doesn't go looking for excitement by any means and never did, but he's not going to do any very heavy work either and you might as well tell Matthew not to breathe as not to work. Come and lay off your things, Rachel. You'll stay to tea? Well, seeing you're so pressing, perhaps I might as well stay, said Mrs. Rachel, who had not the slightest intention of doing anything else. Mrs. Rachel and Marilla sat comfortably in the parlor, while Anne got the tea and made hot biscuits that were light and white enough to defy even Mrs. Rachel's criticism. I must say, Anne has turned out a real smart girl, admitted Mrs. Rachel, as Marilla accompanied her to the end of the lane at sunset. She must be a great help to you. She is, said Marilla, and she's real steady and reliable now. I used to be afraid she'd never get over her feather-brained ways, but she has, and I wouldn't be afraid to trust her in anything now. I never would have thought she'd have turned out so well that first day I was here three years ago, said Mrs. Rachel. Lawful heart shall I ever forget that tantrum of hers. When I went home that night, I says to Thomas, says I, Mark my words, Thomas, Marilla Cuthbert'll live to rue the step she's took. But I was mistaken, and I'm real glad of it. I ain't one of those kind of people, Marilla, as can never be brought to own up that they've made a mistake. No, that never was my way, thank goodness. I did make a mistake in judging Anne, but it weren't no wonder for an otter unexpected or witch of a child there never was in this world, that's what. There was no ciphering her out by the rules that worked with other children. It's nothing short of wonderful how she's improved these three years, but especially in looks. She's a real pretty girl got to be, though I can't say I'm overly partial to that pale, big-eyed style myself. I like more snap and color like Diana Barry has or Ruby Gillis. Ruby Gillis's looks are real showy. But somehow, I don't know how it is, but when Anne and them are together, though she ain't half as handsome, she makes them look kind of common and overdone. Something like them white June lilies she calls narcissists alongside of the big red peonies, that's what. I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but... I thought this chapter was really perfect for you because of Anne realizing in this one that she wants to be a teacher and studying yes. to be a teacher and you're a teacher. So it seemed really perfect. Um, but before we dive into that, I wanted to ask you about, just to talk a little bit about your relationship to Anne. Is this your first time encountering Anne of Green Gables? Did you have any relationship to Anne before you started listening to the Perennials Podcast Book Club audio reading of Anne? Yeah, so my relationship with Anne is relatively new. Uh, the podcast recordings are the first time I've heard, read Anne of Green Gables. It was just one of those classics that I missed growing up somehow. All I knew was that she was the girl with the red hair. Mm-hmm. So what do you think has drawn you into it? Well, one, I just think that we're in such a dark time in our history and, you know, between the coronavirus pandemic, the looming presidential election, um, the con- even though racism has always been happening since our country's inception, the continued attacks on Black people um, and racist acts by police. And Anne of Green Gables is just such a good story and it's so kind and sweet and just listening to you read it is so calming um 
And at the same time, though, I do think that there, it's not just like a happy thing. There's also a lot of important lessons in there. There's, it has a lot to say about um, love and Anne is a strong girl character. And I like that she's really confident and she knows who she is and she's smart and she has great friends and she doesn't really let people define her. Um, and I also just separately really love all the stuff about nature, even just reading over this chapter. Uh, all the details about nature are really rich and that's something that I've had more time to appreciate now with quarantine and walks outside being some of the only times out of the house. Um, just trying to see the world through Anne's eyes and seeing all the trees and flowers and animals. Yeah, that's been one of my favorite parts reading it too, actually, is anytime a chapter begins with her setting the scene of the season and the landscape and everything, it's like this huge sigh of relief. And I feel like she's just so good at, Ella Montgomery, I mean, is so good at writing that description of the seasons and the landscape in a way that sometimes when people write descriptions like that, it's boring. And she does it in a way that's like so vivid. And it's vivid without being like overly indulgent. It's, it's described pretty simply through Anne's eyes as like a child, but I think it's that sense of like wonderment. Like she's not necessarily describing it like a fancy poet. But yeah. it's just that everything is so amazing and beautiful. And I also realized recently that I started describing things as romantic more. <laughs> and I think that I definitely got that from listening to Anne of Green Gables. Like, I've just been obsessed with being like, oh, it's... like, I was taking a walk with my boyfriend the other day and it started pouring rain as we were walking home. And I was like, oh, this is so romantic, <laughs> which is like, I know that's also just a romance movie trope, but it's really not romantic just getting <laughs> rained on. But I was like, oh, I think this is the Anne of Green Gables and me starting to come out. That's really sweet. And also, I think there's something about like being like Anne in noticing something like that and also noticing the good and not just like the hassle of it or whatever. It's like a very Anne thing to even notice yes. and think of it in that way. Would you, Are you up for a little lightning round of questions? Sure. I'm curious, which character do you identify with the most? Hmm. I think that everybody wants to be an Anne, but I think that I'm probably more of a Diana. Hmm. Um, I think that Diana has a lot of the good parts of Anne also. Um, she is also carefree and has a sense of imagination, though we'll talk about in this chapter a little bit how that starts to wane. Um, but I think that like Diana... I often, like, I don't consider myself that outgoing, but I feel like I attract really extroverted, outgoing people, and then I just, like, accept them. Yeah. Uh, like, I just have these really, I say a lot that I'm a Virgo, um, and I attract a lot of Geminis, which is, like, <laughs> big personalities, kind of chaotic energy, um, and Virgos are more, like, regimented and orderly and things like that. Um, and I just, and I'm just like, yeah, okay, sure. And it's nice because like Anne, those people in my life help to shake things up a little bit, make me a little bit more fun and less scheduled and all that stuff, but it just like works. And um, so that's kind of why I think I'm a Diana. Yeah, no, I could definitely see that. 
And I think that Anne's really need Diana's and Diana's need Anne's. It's like yeah. it really, like you're saying, it really is symbiotic because I think I am more of the Anne type. And I do have a lot of friends who like ground me more and are like a little bit steadier and a little bit more like, is it that bad, Victoria? Like maybe we just need to step back a little bit and like maybe yes. it's not the end of the world. Like it's important for <laughs> to have those, that balance. Yes, that that is, it's funny because it seems like those two personality types wouldn't work, but just like you say, the Anne's help the Diana's dream a little bit more, be more imaginative and playful. And then the Diana's help Anne stay a bit more grounded and not get into trouble all the time. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. What is your favorite Anne mess up? Maybe when she's climbing the thing or walking across it and then she falls because I just feel like she's just like trying to prove herself to other people and then it just it's more of like her playfulness her daringness um that kind of puts her in that situation and her stubbornness a little bit also yeah it's like it's reckless but I admire it like yeah I, I love how it's described as like I can't remember the exact phrasing, but Montgomery kind of describes it as like, it's hilarious that she thought for a second that she could do it, you know, like, and <laughs> yeah. just kind of like, why did she have that confidence? I mean, she was scared and everything, but um, I am kind of like, well, she has chutzpah. Like I never yeah. would, I would have been Ruby Gillis screaming on the ground. I'm always like, every time they get into something and Ruby Gillis is like hysterical, I'm like, and that's me. So that's where I'm, I think I'm a little bit Anne and a little bit Ruby Gillis. Um, yes. And I definitely, I think that's really relatable. Like I just remember um, that like growing up, there was this neighbor, neighborhood playground and there was a park behind it. And my friends and I used to play in the woods. We were like 12, 13 maybe. And there would be like logs across the creek. And we would like, you know, try to dare each other to cross it and things like that. And I just feel like that's just like peak bored childhood. Mm-hmm. It's like, this could be kind of dangerous actually, but also it's just like when you're a child, sometimes you have no sense of danger. And I, I really kind of miss those things. Like I think now I would not climb across the log on the creek because I'm more fearful now than I was when I was 12. Yeah. And I think it's actually, I mean, I'm sure there's like a level of recklessness that's a bridge too far, but I think in some ways it's like a mark of healthy development to like be a kid taking those risks because it means that you feel safe enough to do it. I'm sure there's lots of different, right? you know, situations, but in some, I feel like if a kid feels like, oh, everything's going to be fine, then if they're doing it from that place, then like there's kind of a healthy sense of safety in the world that they have, which is like a good thing. And then they fall and they learn like, oh, not entirely safe and exactly. <laughs> they don't do it again. But yeah. Okay. I'm curious if there's a moment of parenting in and that you think is a good example of how to raise a kid. I feel like the adults in Anne's life sometimes are sometimes do and say things that are like not helpful and not great but is there a moment where you felt like oh an adult in Anne's life like really did her a solid and did a good job in this moment 
Well, I feel like it's really sweet when Matthew does the whole plan to get her a dress. Yeah. That's a very heartwarming part of the book. Um, But it's also like, it's a little annoying because Matthew gets to do like the one fun thing and (laughs) Merla has to do like all of the child rearing, which is you've talked about before. But it is a really sweet part where it's like, oh, Anne gets to indulge in something and just be a child and a girl who cares about little girl things and those things that seem so important then, like having a fashionable dress. Um, So I feel like that was a sweet moment, a sweet parenting moment. Yeah. And I feel like it's nice too, because it's actually, it pushes Matthew to grow a little bit, which I would imagine like a lot of the best parenting moments are growth opportunities for the adults or the parents as much as for the kids like when a when the adult raising the kid is like doing something really generous for them or really loving like that's often got to take something and so like he really put himself out of his comfort zone and like even trying to go to the store to buy it and then actually just making a decision and not um not solely relying on Marilla and going to Mrs. Lind and just like taking action as opposed to completely standing back all the time so like I really like that one too yeah definitely okay I have one last question and then we can get into the chapter do you have a favorite bit of wisdom or a lesson learned from Anne or just something that you kind of take with you as like oh yeah that's something to keep with me that's a good question um this was I just thought of this quote it's not in this chapter that we're going to talk about, but it's the very last chapter before chapter 29, um, where she talks about that she had a splendid time, but the best of it all was the coming home. Mm. And that's just a really heartwarming quote. I think that it applies a lot to, um, even when I'm, been like taking this happiness class online and some of the things they talk about are like the things that you enjoy the most and get the most happiness with sometimes are like the most temporary things and experiences because it's finite um, and then you can like look back on that fondly and I feel that in that statement and I also feel just like that that comforting feeling of coming home and being like, okay, that was fun, but also I'm really happy that I'm home. Yeah. There is something really nice about that feeling of after being on a trip or doing something kind of adventurous and when you're like tired and you're kind of like, you're ready to get back. You're going to be in your own bed. Yeah. But you get to return with those memories and it's something I really like about that chapter. Okay, shall we get into the chapter? Okay, let's do it. Okay. So the chapter starts out, Anne is gazing into the fire and daydreaming, and Marilla's watching her with this tenderness, right? But the narrator says that Marilla would never openly say, I love you, or like openly express love with words or in the way that she looks at someone. I like that the image of like, she feels like she can look at Anne tenderly in this firelight, like that cozy, warm, dark 
glow that they're in, like the little cozy hearth side glow. She feels like she can look at her tenderly, but it's really sad to read that um, Marilla feels like it's sinful to love and so much and be so attached to her and so her like penance is um being strict with her and being more harsh with her because she loves her so much and Anne doesn't sometimes feels like she's too strict and really doesn't know how Marilla really feels about her so that kind of sets the tone of the chapter and shortly after that when Anne is talking about herself and Diana and how they're kind of talking about more serious things and not as imaginative and Diana and still kind of talking about fairies but Diana doesn't talk about imagination as much anymore because her mother gave her such a scolding about Mm -hmm. the haunted wood I just thought the juxtaposition was really interesting of Marilla and Diana it's kind of like this not a foreshadowing because I think Diana is really different from Marilla but like the fact that Marilla's thinking in terms of love being like loving too much, being sinful. Like she definitely got Mm -hmm. indoctrinated with a certain type of religious experience early on. And Diana also got, is getting conditioned by her mom in a certain way. And the way that that affects people like Diana's shutting down a little bit, her imagination and Marilla has shut down her heart and her, sense of love and expression a bit and so that just really struck me the way that we are shaped by adults and institutions from such a young age and like the effect that that can have um so I'm wondering yeah if you have any thoughts or what kind of struck you from those parts or if something else in the beginning of the chapter struck you yeah that was definitely something I noted it's such like a powerful scene I was actually pretty surprised by how tenderly even the narrator was describing Marilla's feelings for Anne I think that it was like the most loving and emotional um that even like from Marilla's thoughts perspective that we've heard her talk about Anne and then exactly like you were saying um but she's saying like because she loves her so much she is really strict and really hard on her and I think that that definitely can be applied like generally when we're talking about just um, like you were saying, being an indoctrinated into like a religious culture, I think also it has a lot to do with like womanhood and girlhood. Um, and I think about how like this protectiveness, even now that mothers feel um, toward their daughters and sometimes just, like this fear that they have having young girls in this world. And, um, and I think this doubles for black mothers, um, for other women of color and just like the need to protect your child. And, um, and sometimes that means that you need to prepare them for this world and need to be harsh on them and strict with them um, so that they're prepared for the realities of the world and Anne is like just pure girlhood she's starting to age a little bit but she's just like pure freedom and carefreeness and imagination and it's almost like Marilla feels like she loves her so much and she wants to protect her so she needs to 
shape her so she's more prepared for like the harsh world like you had to prepare for this world where women have to behave a certain way and have to follow certain rules of society or they're ostracized and can't make a living or can't support themselves so Marilla does have a lot of pessimism she also has a lot of realism Mm -hmm. yeah I think Marilla is also like protecting herself like she's had such a wall up I think it's like so uncomfortable for her and so alien for her to experience what she experiences with Anne that she's just very self-protective too but I yeah I, I almost like I want the backstory on Marilla like why yeah. is so shut down like what happened to her yeah I know I was reading this chapter and just going like what did their parents do to them Matthew <laughs> and Marilla <laughs> um yeah I think it does say I mean because Mrs. Lind makes a lot of comments too about all sorts of things being sinful so there's definitely like a type of religion I feel like and and culture that is just very much like fearful and shutting down the body and it's like these are like the rules of society and how we engage and I think I mean this is further along in the chapter but it's thematically very linked I also felt that when Miss Stacy like takes the girls to the river or the creek or something and you know talks to well before that even she's pretty like harsh with Anne about um reading her novel in class and Marilla's like I never got to read novels as a girl so like again we see that self-protection like I remember in college um learning about the history of the novel and women writers and readers and it's crazy how restrictive um people were with not wanting women to read novels and get bad ideas and stuff and um but when Miss Stacy takes them to the to give to talk to the girls, I did get this sense of like, hmm, like this is interesting. She's separating the girls from the boys and she's saying, like, you have to be really careful about protecting your character and developing a good character. It'll be set by the time you're 20. And if you don't have a good foundation, you can't build anything on it. And I just found myself wondering, like, is some of this like a purity thing? Like, is she like, don't get pregnant or something? You know, like, is that the underlying subtext? I literally wrote down, is this code for virginity and purity question mark? Yeah. (laughs) I wasn't sure, but I was like, I think that's what's happening here. Yeah. Um, And I, the fact that their character is set by the time they're 20 is really funny to me. (laughs) <laughs> that that's yeah. like a thought and Anne's like that's so old I know <laughs> yeah well, it kind of reminded me of like Jane the Virgin crumple up the flower you can't get it back to the way it was like all of those like virginity metaphors and I feel like that's because they were talking about you know kind of like once you ruin the foundation you can't build on it so that's what made me think of virginity too because it was just like this idea that like once it's ruined you can't go back which it's like eh, Usually if you, you know, have integrity, you make mistakes, you can still pass the age of 20, have integrity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, that's, that's why I was thinking that. I, I also think like it was a little bit farther, it was a little bit before that when 
um, there was kind of this throwaway line where they were talking about like blighted and blighted myrtle. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, someone says it's because her young man had gone back on her. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering also, I was kind of confused by that line. I also was like, who is Myrtle? But (laughs) I was like, okay, she's blighted because it sounds like her man left her. And I think that's maybe tied to this idea of like virginity and purity and the girls are growing up and these are the rules of society and they have to be respectable. Yeah. I, I found myself reading that and going like, if it were true that your character was set by 20 and oh god, I would be screwed. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that would be a bad thing. All of this stuff about protecting girls that is, a lot of it is rooted in these kind of archaic damaging things are also rooted in the reality of how harsh the world could be to women and like the way that they would get treated, even if it's not fair, even if a, if someone doesn't agree with it, like it's all women telling these girls to like stay in line and be of good character and take care of yourself because they know how harsh the punishment can be for women who don't and like how hard the world can be. So I also kind of understand that. You know, yeah, that definitely. desire to protect. But it's also like such an interesting chapter to dissect because like, wow, these are all these ideals about girlhood and womanhood and all these like false things that were told from a very young age by mother figures and teacher figures. And it's like interesting to see that in some ways it's changed and in other ways, like the core of that message is still pretty prevalent in society and it hasn't changed that much since Ella Montgomery wrote about these things. Yeah, and I yeah. wonder if, um, if she's writing about it to make a point or if that was not her intention, if that's just kind of like the message she was going for. I, I almost feel like the way that it is brought up, it's that she is kind of trying to make a point about it. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because I don't know too much about her life. I want to learn more about her after I've finished the book. I didn't want it to like color my reading too much, but I did read that like she didn't get married until she was 37 and she had mm-hmm. a couple of suitors and she also had this guy that she fell really in love with and had some like sexual experiences with and then I think he was kind of poor or something so she ended up breaking it off with him and then he died really young like not too long after that and she just like regretted it for the rest of her life because she really loved him um but I just think it's interesting like a woman who got married at 37 she had some life experience and who had like suitors and stuff like she knows your character is not set at 20 she knows that like you're not this just unblemished flower or whatever I mean but yeah, but she's also a product of her time. So it's interesting just to try to read between the lines and figure out, I mean, what does it, you know, and like, what does it feel like the book is saying regardless of her intention, you know? I think another kind of funny part that goes along with this theme that we're talking about is um, when Anne's like kind of on her babbling streak and she's talking about like Diana and her, we're thinking about promising that they'll just be old maids together. Yeah and never marry and live together which is like 
hilarious. Um, and also makes me think that like, that's why Ellen Montgomery's kind of trying to like do a little dig at sexism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then she also says like in the line after that, well, Diana's not sure about that though, because she would also like to find like an evil or like a wicked man and change him. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, wow, what another ideal that's still so popular in our media and our movies. And even though, you know, we might not say that per se, I still think that's a really popular idea that good women, good girls should like get the bad guys and change them to be. Yeah. And I liked that it's Diana saying that. So like, it's a child saying this thing that she probably learned from romantic books or novels or whatever um that I feel like the narrator and the audience can kind of like have a laugh about and but similar to that it's so interesting to also then get like when it comes to the the students who are um studying to to hopefully go to Queens and become teachers their different like ambitions like Ruby's like I'm gonna teach for two years and then get married Jane Andrews is like, I'm never getting married because men suck. Yes. Basically. And Josie Pye's like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I just want to get an education. I don't really need it. Like you kind of get the sense maybe she has the most money. So she's like, well, I don't really need a husband and I don't really need an education. Like I don't really need a job. Um, so like, it's, it's so interesting. And even for such young girls to like be thinking in this way and to be so strategic and, you know, Oh, that was so funny. Yes, I I thought that was so funny too, and um, I I also really loved Marilla's Marilla's thoughts on education, um, which was kind of surprising to me because I feel like she often espouses these really religious or conservative views, and you know she's always telling Anne, "Don't do this, don't do that," and but then she comes out and it was like, "Oh yeah, like Matthew and I were planning for this. We're going to give you a good education. I think all girls should." be able to earn their own money even if they don't need it they should always have that backup plan um which was like surprising to me I think from Marilla's character but I could definitely also see is in line with their character because she is pretty self-sufficient and reliant and even though she has Matthew she pretty much does most things on her own and raises Anne on her own um and all of those things so I was surprised by her being so straightforward about that with Anne and being like, yep, girls should be able to earn their own money so that you're going to get an education. Yeah, I feel like she's very practical. Throughout history, it's been few privileged women who actually haven't had to work, you know? Oh, yeah. So it's like Marilla and Matthew and Anne, they live on a farm. Like farmers work really hard. Like everyone who lives on the farm works hard. And it's also heartening that Marilla wants her to have the education so that she can maybe do something a little different, you know, um, she can teach instead of something like, you know, she can do something that maybe she'll enjoy that she's good at. I'm curious what you think about as a teacher yourself, what you think about Anne wanting to become a teacher. Do you think that Anne would make a good teacher? I think she would. I think that, well, one, she's like the top of her class, you know, her and Gilbert. Yeah. Um, And she, so we know that she's super smart and that she's super passionate and that, you know, she's just really curious and loves learning and 
mostly how she talks about being a kindred spirit with people. I think that she would be a teacher that is probably pretty radical for her time, but is a little closer to today of um, thinking that children should have joy in the classroom and also learn a lot. So I feel like Anne could be a really great teacher in that way. But I think especially at this time, like, you know, going to Queens, becoming a teacher for Anne, that's kind of like one of the highest levels she could achieve as a woman in her society. Teaching is like a good job and um, she'd be able to, you know, take care of herself, like Marilla is saying. Yeah. I think that there aren't a lot of other options for women in her time um, other than marrying. Yeah. Speaking of all that, I I wish that Anne wasn't in such a bad place with Gilbert right now because I'm really curious why he wants to go to Queens, you know? (laughs) I know. And Gilbert, oh my gosh. And Marilla asks Anne, well, what does Gilbert want to be? Because she like explains in detail what everyone (laughs) wants to be. And then she's like, I don't know. He doesn't, I don't think he has any life's ambition. She's just so bitter toward him. Which is, it's so fascinating because she's so romantic But at the same time, like she says, I think Ruby Gillis thinks about young men too much. And she is the one who wants to be an old maid with Diana. And Diana is the one who has this romantic idea about reforming a wicked young man. When it's just really interesting, because when it comes to like romantic love, she doesn't, she's not that obsessed with it. Like you would think based on everything else that she would be like, super in love with Gilbert because he's so he's like handsome and charming and everyone else is in love with him and she actually seems kind of like afraid of it and I wonder is that like is that her protecting because she's such a like she just so embodies like the happy child and you know in us Mm -hmm. like is that her wanting to like protect that child part and like not wanting actually to grow up and become like a woman and have you know, sexual and romantic experiences. Um, Cause she really like rejects that, which is just, I, I don't know. I find it really fascinating and like really incongruous with incongruous. I don't know where the emphasis goes in that word um, with like her romanticism, you know? Yeah. yeah. She, sometimes I wonder about her feelings for Diana. I'm just like, she, she could be in love with Diana. I'm yeah. not sure. She really wants to grow old with her. No men involved so I don't want to project too much upon Anne but I'm just like she maybe it changes she is not interested in boys at all right now (laughs) true yeah that I did that did that thought did kind of cross my mind a little bit when I was reading this chapter and reading that part about them like becoming old maids together and how much she loves Diana and there's definitely I could see some queer theory digging into that a little bit more There's one funny moment that I wanted to point out, but. Is it the Moody quote? Yes. Oh my gosh. I wrote that down. It didn't fit in any other category, but I was like, I just have to bring up this Moody quote, which I'll just read. It says, yes, please do. Moody Spurgeon had never been so carried away by his feelings before. And he blushed uncomfortably every time he thought about it for a week. (laughs) I love that. That resonated with me so much. I was just like, I don't, this is a fit with any other theme I want to talk about, but I have to write this down because this is just like the funniest line in the chapter. It's so relatable. It's so relatable. And I actually think like 
in this chapter, there is so much about growing up and kind of that in between, like in between childhood and adulthood. And it's such a like middle school, early high school feeling to just be like, I mean, I still feel it sometimes, but like the, the level of embarrassment that you can feel as an adolescent when you like do or say something. Yeah. I was just like, You're like, oh, that was so weird. I shouldn't have said that. I just yeah. felt it. I yes. felt super moody. Yes. <laughs> There's just nothing else to say about it. It's just a perfect line. It is. Just like a meme. <laughs> yeah. A moody meme. Um, was there anything that we missed that you wanted to talk about? Um, one thing I want to talk about was at the very end. Mm-hmm where Mrs. Lind goes to talk to Marilla and she's kind of at first she's like oh you know what Marilla I think I was wrong I thought you would like rue the day that you adopted Anne but she's awesome and um all these things which you're like yay but then she like goes on to compare Anne and her looks to like all the other girls in Avonlea and it's kind of a weird scene yeah. Because uh, she's like, Anne isn't pretty like Diana or Ruby, but like when she's next to them, they look plain and she looks like interesting. I'm just like, you started off so good, Mrs. Lind. Like you were really going for your redemption arc and then you just like hit us with those beauty standards again. And it was, yeah. it's, it was like random and weird. Well, it's like interesting because she said, at first I was like, ugh, when she's like, she's improved the most in the way that she looks. I was like, oh, that's gross. I think there's something interesting about her kind of, despite the fact that she thought Anne was ugly, after having gotten to know her, I feel like she sees Anne's inner beauty kind of shining through. And like Anne is such an interesting person and has so much going for her that she's like, she's not as conventionally attractive, but for some reason, like she looks like other people look plain, like it is like gross that we have to like compare or not have to that that people so often do focus on the way that girls look and compare them but there's also something there I feel like of her kind of transcending it a little bit in terms of being like like kind of seeing her inner beauty and being like huh maybe someone being really smart and funny and loving and interesting can make them really attractive to you you know what I mean yeah that's an interesting point I did not read it that way, but I could see that. I think I also was thinking about, because I just read the other chapter before, chapter 29, and um, where they go see Aunt Josephine. Yeah. He was like, oh, yeah, you got a lot better looking. So it's just like back-to-back people being like, oh, you're getting a lot better looking. Yeah, that's Um, true. And so I just, but maybe she's also seeing her inner beauty, but I also kind of feel this, like, cringe thing of, Anne is like maturing and maybe like kind of growing into her looks and people are just constantly commenting on it. Yeah. And you're like, no, how about how like she's so much better at controlling her outbursts. Yeah. She's studying super hard and is like in this selective program. Yeah. And, you know, made friends and one over the hearts of everyone. It's like, well, her hair is not as weird anymore. (laughs) The most important thing is that her hair is auburn now. (laughs) Um, You know what also struck me was the way, I think sometimes 
Anne's like child wisdom is just so striking when she says to to Marilla, um, maybe it's the last summer I'll be a little girl. And mm. so she literally is planning to just like enjoy it to the absolute utmost. Like just I'm gonna just like be a little girl this summer and just really enjoy it and soak it up because this might be my last year to just be a kid. Like the fact that she is aware of that and present with that and then is able to like go like, okay, so if this is my last year to be a little girl, I'm going to make sure I make the most of it. Like there's just so much wisdom in that actually. Yeah, I do love that. I think that that is so Anne. I also feel like it's relatable. Like I just... I love all the stuff where she's talking about like, well, we're almost 14 now. And like, (laughs) these are how 14 year olds act and just like how important those benchmarks are for us that we like socially construct in our lives. And I just remember um, being a little bit of an Anne in this scenario. Like I remember um, like ending fifth grade and I was like, well, I'm going to middle school now. So I've got to start acting like a middle schooler. And I remember (laughs) being like, like, I loved Barbie dolls, and I remember being like, you know what? Pack them up. Like, you can't play Barbie dolls. Like, nobody told me this, but I was just like, you're you're going to middle school, so no more playing with dolls. That's not yeah. what middle school girls do. And I just feel like that is, like, what Anne is doing right now. She's just like, well, I'm 13 and three quarters. I, you know, I just got to do what I got to do and act like a 14-year-old girl now. And I, I just love that. I know. I, it's sad, but it's also, like, it, it happens to everybody. I feel like in the past, so in the early 20th century when this was written, people grew up faster, like, once they were, I feel like adolescence and young adulthood was, like, shorter in terms of expectations and, like, how young people would get married and have children and things like right. that. But I feel like childhood in the case of, at least like in this case of Anne, like the fact that Anne is still calling herself a little girl at almost 14, like actually we wouldn't. Like like you said, I think in our culture, it's more likely for kids to feel like, oh, I'm not a, I'm not a little kid anymore, anymore at like 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. I Sometimes I wish that it wasn't so... I mean, like it's individual for everyone and I understand like puberty hits at different times and things like that, but... I feel like in some ways kids do kind of grow up a little faster and some kids like, you know, things happen a little faster than they're ready for in middle school where like, mm-hmm. and you've taught middle school. So yeah. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on like developmentally, like where kids are, because I feel like some kids at 11, they do want to still be playing with Barbies and some are getting caught up in like really adult <laughs> things, you know, mm-hmm. so Yeah, I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I do think in general, like, I think even not necessarily our generation, but like the generation of kids who I teach who are like 13, 14, 15 years old, like, in a lot of ways, they have been kind of forced to grow up quickly. And like, they've been raised in this age where just like technology has always been a thing and social media has always been a thing for them. And like at the risk of sounding like a boomer, I think it does 
Like it does, you're just like exposed to so much. Like, yeah, nothing is, you know, filtered out. You can, you know, see everything on Twitter and um, social media. And, um, and so in a lot of ways, I think that just like kids have less of the childhood, um, like, imagination and creativity like you know in middle school like I was saying I was playing in the woods behind the playground I like kind of doubt that kids would be doing that now there's less of like playing outside and more of like they have Netflix if they want to watch TV and they have video games and they have social media to scroll on and YouTube videos to watch there's like an endless supply of content so there's less of and that stuff is really addictive and there's just like less of an incentive to go outside and play and um, things like that but like then at the same time, as someone who taught eighth graders, I do feel like, you know, sometimes oh, like I'm blown away by how smart and bright and like in with current events they are and how they advocate for themselves and advocate for things like Black Lives Matter and trans rights and just like things that I think that I was not able to articulate at their age. But at the same time, then they do things and I'm like, oh, you're such a little kid still. Like, you really are still 13, 14 years old. Um, just like the conflict that they'll get in with their friends or um, kind of like the concerns they will have. They are still really little kids at heart. And so there's both to it. It's like they're really smart and really advanced and maybe aren't playing as much, but I think developmentally they're kind of still at a similar level of maybe where Anne was at, where they're still trying to be like, okay, well, I'm going into high school next year. These are the, these are the things I have to do. Yeah. Innocence is such a weird word and concept because like, what does it even really, Yeah. what does it even really mean? I don't know. You know, and like, um, like forcing certain types of innocence on kids, I think is actually damaging. But at the same time, there is something and like that whole idea of like also protecting kids from things that might be too much for them. And and like sometimes that also comes from just wanting kids to experience the freedom mm-hmm. that they have as kids of not having to worry about or deal with certain things yet or, you know, not having to like navigate certain things yet. And there is a lot of freedom and like an active imagination and play play and things like that. So yeah, it's like just a really complicated, like complex, interesting thing. Like they still love getting stickers as rewards (laughs) and like stamps and things like that. And like, they love, you know, like playing games and things like that. So it's like, I also don't want to like adultify people kids little kids you know before they're ready but also they have such a greater access to information so it's like yeah. and you know they're going to school in like the post columbine post 9-11 yeah. world I'm just like which we were like kind of in the midst of but I just think like it's changed yeah so much with that also yeah and um one last thing that I had written down about Anne was that I'm just like, and again, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I still don't know how this book ends. I'm, I'm really getting worried about Matthew. We've had a yeah. few drops about his bad health and now he's having some issues with his heart. And I'm just like, 
Yeah. I know there's, there's kind of, and even, um, Marilla has been having her headaches and like calling the doctor. There's definitely kind of some, yeah, some things in there like, hmm, they are a bit older, especially I guess for that time. And they've worked really hard and yeah, I know it's a little unsettling. Just like think something bad's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there it's definitely like it's a really rich chapter and like very kind of complex and bittersweet in a lot of ways and it's just what I love about the book like these are short very short chapters and like the writing is very it's simple in a lot of ways but it's like not simple at all. It's just fascinating how much is like right under the surface. Yeah. It is. And it's, it was really interesting being on this end of like taking notes and seeing like what I wanted to talk about. And I, and same thing, I'm just like, when I would listen to your podcast, I'd be like, wow, I don't know how she thought of these things, like from that Anne of Green Gables chapter. But then when I started doing it, I was like, yeah, there are a lot of like deep things in here. Like I, I agreed with you, but I was just like, wow, I don't know how she thought of that. Yeah, like I yeah. would never drawn the line between that scene and you know, thoughts of feminism and girlhood and societal expectations and religion. And, but it's like, yeah, I mean, when you do read it, it, there is a lot very close to the surface. Um, Especially I just like love this chapter. I felt like I had a lot to say about like growing up and education and girlhood and all that. Which is all your jam. Yes, (laughs) it really was. I was like, this is a great chapter. Thank you so much for doing this with me. It was so fun and it was so nice. It's so nice to actually talk to someone else about it (laughs) and get to hear your thoughts and what stuck out for you and like our different readings of some things. So thank you for your time and attention and generosity. Of course, thank you for inviting me to do this. This was really fun.